If you will, turn in your Bibles. I'm going to start a, a series, a short series through the book of Malachi. Or some people like to call him Malachi, the Italian prophet. If you don't know where Malachi is, find the book of Matthew. Most of you can find the book of Matthew and then just go backwards because it's the last Old Testament book in the order that you've been given. Most people know very little about Malachi. Just give you a little context of Malachi, which by the way, we have a Malachi here. Is he here today? Where's Malachi? There's Malachi. If you want to know what Malachi looked like, uh, looked like in the Old Testament, I guarantee it was something like Malachi back there. Well, Zechariah had prophesied about a marvelous restored temple to the people with all the nations of the earth flocking to it. And one day the Jews would live in a powerful new kingdom. And on the throne would sit a mighty son of David, ruling in justice, peace, and prosperity. This glorious hope had greatly encouraged the remnant of Israel who had returned from exile. But as the years passed, the vision became obscured by the dreary, gray reality of everyday life. By the time of Malachi... A generation had passed since the days of Zechariah and his vision. The temple, though rebuilt, was now run down and neglected due to a lack of funds. People were not contributing. People were not excited about God and his worship. The priest had become corrupt. And they were performing their duties with a dull apathy. Families in that generation were falling apart, marriages being destroyed, children not following the ways of old. The economy was depressed. Parasites were devouring the crops, and the rich were devouring the poor. The people were discouraged, disillusioned, and doubtful. Where was the hope? As I considered Malachi, I thought, you know what? We can relate a little bit to the time period Malachi was writing to. When things were not all wonderful and fulfilling all the vision and the hopes that we had, and they didn't see all that had been promised yet. Now steps in Malachi, written about 432 B.C., Though we know very little about him as a person, he never speaks of himself here. But we know his name means my messenger. God sent him at an appointed time to speak to the people. We call he and several of the other prophets minor prophets. And it's certainly not because they were minor or insignificant. They were considered minor just because of the size of the book. Major prophets got a lot of pages. Minor prophets only got a few. But being a minor prophet, he is still very significant. He is quoted by Paul in Romans 9, by Luke in Luke 1 and chapter 7. He was quoted by Mark, and he was quoted by Jesus in Matthew 11. There are three messianic prophecies referenced in the book of Malachi in chapter 3 and 2 in chapter 4. Malachi being a post-exile prophet, writing to a restored Jewish people, 
The situation was the temple had been restored thanks to the preaching of Haggai and, and Zechariah. Jewish worship had been reestablished and sacrifices resumed thanks to the teaching of Ezra. And walls had been built to protect the city, to protect the people, thanks to the leadership of Nehemiah. And now God chooses to address all of Israel the first time he does so since Deuteronomy, where he addresses all of the people. The book resembles a conversation between a father and a son as we walk through the four chapters here. It's really a father and a rebellious child. The father makes some indictments of his son, and the son responds with questioning the father. There are six how questions and one what question. In chapter 1, you'll see, but you say, how have, we, how have you, there are people questioning, the, the, the child questioning the father, how have you loved us? In verse 6 in chapter 1, he says, how have we despised your name? In verse 7, how have we polluted or defiled you? In chapter 2, verse 17, how have we wearied him? Talking about God. In ver, uh, chapter 3, how shall we return? How shall we, or how have we robbed you? And then at the end of chapter 3, verse 13, how have we spoken against you? Six disputations, six criticisms, points of argument against the people of the things that they were failing to do to follow the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, people question God's love. The reality is they were failing to love God. He says how he loves them and is calling them to purity. And they, they were like, well, how do you really love us? In chapter 1, six, uh, verse 6 through chapter, nine, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, people are questioning God's position. And he's calling them out. They, they are not respecting him. They are not uh, honoring him. And they're questioning if he's even worth the honor. They were despising and defiling his name with inadequate offerings of their heart and their resources. In chapter 2, verse 10 through 16, you'll see that people were questioning God's faithfulness. A very temptation that all of us could have at times if it's not working the way we desire. They're questioning God's faithfulness while at the same time they are unfaithful in their marriages. In chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, people question God's justice, all the while failing to oppose the injustice that they have all around them. And people were questioning God's provision while giving poor offerings that were condemned. And in chapter 3, verse 13 through the end of chapter 4, people question God's consistent care all while failing to care for what God desires. There's only four chapters here, only 55 verses. And we're going to take just three weeks to unpack these verses. But it's fascinating to me as you look at this, the, the middle verse sets the tone for the entire book. It's the heart of the book. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. I mean, they've got all the emotion in their worship. They're coming and they're, they're just throwing it all out there emotionally. Weeping and tears and, and groaning. 
But why are they weeping? Why do they shed tears? What is the groaning produced from? It's because he no longer, God no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from their hand. And then they question, why does God not accept our offering? The entirety of the book uh, could be summarized right here. Worship in your life, worship among your community is broken and inadequate. You're going through the motions, but there's no heart or understanding behind it. It is unacceptable. He is not honored by the worship the people were giving. Being present and even being emotional was not enough. Sunday worship is only as valid as your walk of life throughout the week. And what God was looking at was not their, their corporate gathering. Because the reality is their corporate gathering ought to just be a magnification of a life lived in faithfulness throughout the week. They were faking it. They were living every which way they desired apart from God's will throughout their week. But if as they gathered, they would be present, they would give their, their offering, though inadequate. They would, they would give their emotion, but it was empty. Our worship is either helped or hindered by how, and this is the three areas we'll look at over the next three weeks, helped or hindered by how we treat people, Realize our relationships impact our worship to God. You think, well, I can just have a vertical relationship with God. My horizontal relationships don't matter. And God says the exact opposite. Your horizontal relationships will determine the effect of your vertical relationship with Him. He also speaks of our possessions. How do we interact and how do we uh, uh, manage the resources and possession God has given us? Our worship is either helped or hindered by how we treat our possessions. And lastly, we'll look at how we treat God's promises. What we believe about them, how we, we, we honor them, how we seek them. Malachi, in this book, if you know anything about um, Hebrew writing, he writes in a, 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 a chiastic structure. What does that mean? He has a thought... And then he has another thought, another thought, another thought, and he works his way back out. This thought will align with this thought. This thought will align with the earlier thought. This thought will align here. And so what I'm going to do today and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go right to the heart. Typically don't do this when I work uh, through a book of the, the Bible, but we're going to go right to the heart of it in chapter 2 because he's going to focus on relationships there. And then he's going to step back a little bit before, earlier in chapter 2, and a little later in chapter 3, where those two connecting parts about our possessions. And then we're going to step back, and we're going to look right at the beginning of Malachi, and right at the end, because those are connected to God's promises. It's this arrow, starting at the heart, and work our way out of this book. You'll see the Psalms written this way at times and, and other uh, writings in Hebrew. The, the, the structure is intentional. I want to follow along with how God gave it to us through the book of Malachi. So let's start here because this is all about worship and the entirety of the three weeks will be about our worship and our heart with God. If the worship was inadequate, 
deficient, lacking a heart, then we need to go right to the heart of worship. And how do we elevate our worship? How do we learn the correction that God was trying to give to the people here in Malachi's day? How do we elevate our worship? And the very first area that he gives us is that we ought to be living and loving God's covenant of marriage. In chapter 2, verse 10, he's going to go right after the heart of why there's a problem here, and it starts in the home. In verse 10, chapter 2, it says, Have we not all one father? He's addressing the entirety of the Israel community. Listen to me. Have we not all one father? He's who's over you, guiding you, protecting you, providing for you. Has not one God created us? You have one creator. You seek him for wisdom. You seek him for instruction and, and guidance. He says, then why then are we faithless? And the New American Standard says, why do we deal treacherously? It talks about that relationship. And this is a repeated word, this faithless word. It is repeated several times in this section, meaning faithless, deal treacherously. We're not living and honoring God's covenant with the people in our lives. And here in particular, he says, why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Boy, that ought to get our attention. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, the worship of God, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Judah profanes his worship because he marries daughters. You know, those within the community are marrying daughters who worship other gods. In verse 12, may the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob. Any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, you're marrying outside the faith, you're not honoring God by marrying someone who, who also honors the Lord. You're abandoning the community, you're abandoning the faith that I've given you, and you're producing offspring that will not follow the Lord. Verse 13, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because you no longer regard the offerings or accept it as favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Well, first off, you're, you're intermarrying with other faiths. You're, you're not following the Lord purely. And he says, because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So there are some who are marrying outside of the Israel community. And it has nothing to do with skin color. It has nothing to do with background. It has to do with the faith that they have. If you say you love the Lord, why would you marry someone who doesn't? That will impact your descendants. But then there are some, according to verse 14, who are marrying within the, the, the faith, but they're faithless to them. They have a covenant with them, but it says 
In verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? I mean, God pulled them together. And what was the one thing uh, that God is seeking? Godly offspring. When two people of faith that worship the same God produce descendants, this, uh, the faith will continue on for another generation. That's God's purpose. So he says, guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, or as some translations will say, God hates divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. As the Father, he says, as the Creator, I want you to understand the purpose of your life is to honor me in all things. And there's no more intimate area in our life than the person we attach ourselves to in marriage. That be, everything around our life has to do with what happens in our home. If our home doesn't reflect Christ, then our worship will always be inadequate on the public gatherings. He goes right after it. You've got to go home. Is the faith that you have being honored on a daily basis? If not, we profane the sanctuary. The worship of the Lord. And here they were doing it in two different ways. One, marrying people who do not follow the Lord. And one, divorcing the spouse that does follow the Lord because you can't stand them. Listen. Choosing a spouse demonstrates what God you worship. Choose wisely. Is there any amen to that? You will never find a perfect person. You are not a perfect person, and they will not be a perfect person. But the foundation of who they are, who they worship, will make a difference in your home. Choose a spouse that demonstrates what, what God you worship. Secondly, remain faithful to the spouse. Or remaining faithful to a spouse demonstrates your faithfulness to the Lord. God is very intrusive when it comes to our personal lives. You may think he lives here in this building. As we will often say to children, let's go to God's house. Let's go visit him. And we'll leave him there for the rest of the week. That's the, the, kind of what comes across sometimes. But no, God is very intrusive when it comes to our lives. He cares about you enough to care about who you align yourself with in marriage. Why? Because he's your father. He's a loving father. Used to be in days of old that a young lady or a young gentleman was beginning to take an interest in someone and they were going to date or they were going to pursue marriage, they would get the families involved. Dad, what do you think about her? Mom, Dad, what do you think about him? And there would be at least an acknowledgement of who they are. And if there was any warnings to be given, it would be given there. If there was just support, then there would be support given. Doesn't always happen in our day. But a loving father says, ask me before you attach to somebody. 
get my wisdom, get my will in this. To go apart from my will and my wisdom will only be detrimental to your life. Who you marry matters. And how you live and love them in marriage matters. In our day, the definition and the demonstration of marriage is under attack. Just as it was in Malachi's day. We can't even understand what you're supposed to, who you're supposed to marry or, or, or even our genders and how all that works. And try, people try to redefine marriage. Even our, our congressional leaders on both, both sides of the aisle have mistaken what marriage really is. Does that mean the church should just accommodate to the culture? Should Malachi came in and said, well, you're kind of doing this and that'll be okay. Let's just redefine what God has said. Listen to me very clearly. One day I may get arrested for saying something like this. God has defined marriage, and marriage is only a divine institution. The government may come in and try to redefine some things for their own practical purposes, but marriage was God's idea, and He pulled it together, and we must honor it according to His word and His will. Stand on that strong. That's not a hateful statement. That's a surrendering statement. I'm a child of God. I'm an heir to the king. Christ died for me. Therefore, I will honor him with my entire life, and I will speak the truth so that people can find hope and an eternal life in him alone. This messing around with God's ordained purpose for marriage is absolutely an affront to his holiness, his promises. It is a, a, a middle finger to God's face. And we sit back and go, well, maybe we ought to be a little more sensitive to this. Listen, if you see somebody running off a cliff, you're going to go, well, let's just be sensitive to their needs right now. It's wrong, and the times will ultimately tell what's wrong with it because people are pursuing joy in something that God will never bless. I'll never forget, right after the Supreme Court's decision on gay marriage took place, and it was only three or four months later, uh, in an interview by somebody who had uh, two females who got married because of that. They, they went to whatever state they needed to and they got married. Three months later, they're being interviewed because they're going through their divorce. Three months! Thinking, I don't even know if that's a divorce or just an annulment and just say, oh, we made a mistake real quick. But the one phrase that got my attention was, finally, we have the right to divorce. Just a few months earlier, people were saying, oh, they have the right to marry. This particular woman said, now we have the right to divorce. And I thought, God hates divorce by heterosexual couples. He hates divorce by homosexual couples in a way that has already dishonored him in the whole process. Here, we can look at what other people are doing, but what, 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 where's our indictment? Do we marry according to God's plan, and do we love and demonstrate God's purpose in the marriage he's given us. Because every day we've been called to live for the glory of God. And it starts in the home. Secondly, we need to live and love God's commitment to mankind. He points to marriage first in this, this brokenness of worship. 
in the home, it matters. But outside of the home, all around, six days a week, apart from the corporate worship on Sunday, how are we interacting and loving the community around us? We see in this next section, chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, we'll see that our worship is impacted by how we see our neighbors and how we treat our neighbors. In verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. <laughs> Thinking back to the, the verse in verse 10 where it says, he's your father. Do you think as a child you ever wearied your father or mother with, with your words? The things you say? You know, clean your room. I have cleaned my room. Where is it not clean? And I'm thinking, have you touched anything? You know, you know uh, have, you, have you brushed your teeth? Yeah, and you're smiling. You got stuff all in it. Yeah, do you weird? God is not, does not, God the Father does not have a physical body. He's not physically tired. He's not, oh, I'm so worn out. Let me just go, go veg out for a little bit. You, you kind of wore me down. No, he's coming to the end of his patience with us when we continue to give idle excuses. He's a very loving and very forgiving God. He says here to the people, they continue to say back to him. They're questioning God in the midst of his instruction to them. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? What have we done? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Their words were cynical and skeptical. They argued that they are all right and that the fault of all the injustice in the world is God's fault. If God cared, he'd do something with it. If he hasn't done something with it, therefore he must be approving of the evil and just calling it good. He must delight in it because he's allowed so much of it. Rather than repenting, and surrendering to God's plan and being a part of the, the answer to the injustice, they just blame God and say God is unfair. They think God does not discriminate between evil and good and perhaps even delights in it. So listen to chapter 3, verse 1, as he carries on this thought. Behold, here's my answer. I send my messenger the first messenger here already is, is Malachi. He's coming with the indictments. He's coming with the instructions of the Lord. But here, there's a, a future uh, messenger coming. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Ooh, sounds a little bit like John the Baptist is coming. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant... Oh, the one who is going to redeem the brokenness and repair the broken covenant between God and man. This is Christ, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, chapter, or verse 2. But who can endure the days of his coming when Christ comes? Or who's going to be able to endure that? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Purifier. Where's Gilbert? He gave us a little test on that last week. The purification, the, the solidification, the, the precious metals of the pottery has to go through the fire. When Christ comes, he's bringing a, a heat that's going to purify us. 
He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, it goes on. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The offerings they had brought so far were inadequate. They were living in their own flesh rather than being filled by God's Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years when Christ comes and makes things right It'll all come together in pure righteousness. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. For those who don't follow the purifying of Christ, there'll be judgment. I'll be swift. Witness against the sorcerers. He's beginning to list the things that they're observing in the injustice of the world in that day. And there's so much connected to ours. The sorcerers against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me. They don't follow me. They don't surrender to me. They don't seek me as Father and Creator, says the Lord of hosts. The injustices of people in their world, linked with sorcerers, the fortune tellers, dabbling in the occult and horoscopes rather than seeking God's word for wisdom and truth. They were lusting for the flesh, these adulterers, sins against their spouse or even a future spouse. The language of falseness mentioned here, swear falsely. When you lie about someone and you lie to someone about someone, That happens in our day. The larceny with their finances, oppressing the wage earners, stealing from those who've earned it and deserve it. Lawlessness among families, widows, fatherless, orphans, oppressing the vulnerable, having no power to protect themselves. There is injustice in our world today as well. And the liability towards foreigners, turning aside the, the sojourners, the, 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 the aliens coming into the community, people not from here, people not like us, and therefore we reject them all out. This is injustice. And the evidence that they do not fear God. There's no consideration of Him being their Creator, their Father, and their Lord. The list of injustices reveals the practices of Malachi's time and even in our days. And I don't believe this is an exhaustive list, but it does indicate areas that God uh, opposes. So how do we respond? How do they respond? Are they the antagonists? Are they causing the injustices? Some perhaps are. Are they just apathetic towards the injustice? Many were. What's the difference between indifference and injustice. Not much. To be indifference to the injustice is just as bad as those who cause the injustice. And perhaps we're not necessarily indifferent or the antagonist. Perhaps we're just the accuser seeing injustice as God's fault. If God hasn't answered, if God hasn't protected, if God hasn't provided, therefore it's God's problem, not mine. That's where some of these in Malachi were. 
Our view and actions with injustice in this world testifies to our love and obedience to our Lord. Injustice this Christmas season, perhaps we could step into a few and correct some errors. And let me assure you that God is under no obligation to care for us, but He chooses to out of His great love. And do we respond to His deep care for us by also loving others who are desperately in need of God's grace? God's answer to injustice here was say, I'm sending two messengers. One, He's coming to prepare the way. And two, there's a messenger of the covenant in whom you will delight. If you see him as my messenger, if you see him as my son, if you see him as the Savior, if you see him coming. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. This is not one who, who is idle or uncaring about the injustices and, and the sin in our world. No, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, this, this messenger of the covenant, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This last messenger will set all things right. That's why Christmas season is so essential. It's a reminder that God loved us enough, even in the injustice and sin of our world, that he sent someone to break through to restore the, the great covenant between God and man. As this messenger has come to set all things right, I wonder, do you trust him? The people of Malachi's day were questioning God, not, not trusting God. He is our Father. He is our Creator. How is our worship to this Father and Creator? Do we trust Christ enough to bring us to the Father? How is the worship that we say we have for God displayed in our homes on a daily basis? How is it in, in how we interact with other people that are hurting and, and hopeless in our world? Jesus was promised in Malachi to come, but we can all proclaim Jesus has come. He was born in that manger. He did live a, a sinless, perfect life. He died on the cross, and he rose from the grave. So therefore, we give our hearts, our lives, our all to him. Jesus has come. So the question is, has he come to you yet? Has he come to your heart? And do you delight in him? Every person in this room, do you delight in Christ to fill you with his joy? This and all other seasons. If we delight in him, we begin to demonstrate our love for him by how we love those in our lives.